Well, by now, you are all probably getting used to the fact that it takes us multiple weeks to get through what seems to be one simple little text in John's first epistle. Where we're at right now in his letter is no exception to that. Last week we started, if you were here, if you remember, into the first two, first of two main points. And we were thinking about 1 John 2, 3 to 6. And we did not even get through the first point. So for today we're going to finish that first point. And don't worry, I'll review here in just a minute. But uh, that's as far as we're going to get this morning is through that first point. We'll have to save the second main point of this text for next time. But I, I trust you will be encouraged through what this, uh, this content is for today as we consider 1 John 2, 3 to 6. And in case you weren't with us last time, let me give you a quick review to help you understand where it is that we're at right now in John's letter. In verse 3 of 1 John chapter 2, we find what appears to be a sudden transition in John's thought. Now, if we were to take time and understand the logic that John is employing here, we would realize it's not really that sudden, and it isn't really an unrelated transition at all. It's just that John doesn't use some of the transitional words maybe that, that Paul uses, therefore, because of this, so that. John just kind of abruptly moves to the next thing. It's not that it's unrelated, but it seems to us as we read it that it might be. And this sudden new thought goes like this. So if you would follow along as I read 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, But does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The thing that I took a good amount of time to explain last week was that this passage is the first of many times in this letter that John makes a very important connection between knowing Christ and obeying Christ. That's what this passage is all about, and it's the first time of many times that John is going to make that appeal, that we would recognize a connection between knowing and obeying Jesus Christ. That's really what I think is the main point of the entire letter, And these verses are all about that main point, which is what it means to know Christ and what it means to obey Christ. And last week we began looking at what John tells us is true about knowing Christ. And then the second point that we'll put off for next week is what it means to obey Christ. So today we're finishing up what it means to know Christ. And the first thing that we looked at that he makes clear about knowing Christ is that knowing Him is an eternal relationship. Knowing Christ is an eternal relationship. And I hope that you remember that we made this point simply by observing the grammar that was before us in verse 3. Look there again and you'll notice that in verse 3 there are two 
times in which John uses the verb to know. John says towards the beginning of the verse, by this we know that. And this knowing, this first knowing, refers to the present tense, the fluctuating experience known as Christian assurance. This first kind of knowledge is one that fades and grows. It comes and goes to a certain extent. It hinges upon what's going on around us. I think we all know that from our experience. That depending on what's happening, depending on what we do, we feel as if we know that we are in Christ more or less, depending on what's going on. It fluctuates. That's the knowledge of Christian experience. It's connected to events around us. But then the second kind of knowing in verse 3 is different from that, very much different from that. The second use comes next in the verse where John writes that we have come to know him, have come to know him. That's a different knowledge than a present tense, experiential, whimsical, depending on the circumstances kind of knowing. You can just tell from the simple observation of the tense that this verb is different. I mentioned last week that the expression that we have here in our English Bibles that says, have come to know, this is the English way of conveying the Greek perfect tense. And the important thing to know about the Greek perfect tense is that it communicates about a verb that its action has been fully accomplished in the past, So the action, whatever it is, has been fully done some point in the past, but that the implications of that action continue on into the future. So for example, if we were to take just a simple past understanding of the idea of knowing someone, you may have known someone in the past, and at that point in the past, you might have known them well, say a friend in high school or college, But the perfect tense is different from just knowing someone in the past who today you don't know very well because a lot of time has elapsed. Because if you have known someone fully in the past in a perfect tense kind of way, that means you continue to know them in an ongoing way in a state of fullness. And it's this perfect kind of knowing that characterizes what it means for us to know Christ. It's a knowledge that is settled in the past and it continues on throughout the rest of eternity, never to fade. It's a knowledge that is never changed in its kind. There's not coming a day when we will know Christ in a different way than we can know him now. That is a glorious thought. Because we sometimes think about, oh, one day I'll know Christ perfectly face to face. But my friend, realize that if you're a Christian, there's no categorical categorical difference between that kind of knowledge and what you can know today about your Savior. It's the same kind of knowledge. It's a knowledge that empowers us to obey Him every day. And we'll actually talk about that a little bit later this morning. So first of all, we have to know that knowing Christ is to have an eternal relationship with Him. It's to have an eternal kind of knowledge of Him that has fully been realized when you come to know Him as Lord and Savior. Secondly, 
Knowing Christ is knowing the truth. Verse 4, John says this. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And the reasoning here is that having the truth in you is being connected to knowing Christ. If you obey him, that means you know him. If you obey him, that means the truth is in you. Therefore, if you know him, it means the truth is in you. We can make that connection. And the important thing that we discussed last week on this point is that the truth of all truths that we have in us, those who know Christ, is the truth of his word. I shared an important verse from Jesus' prayer in John 17 and verse 17 where he says, he prays, sanctify them in truth. And then Jesus says, your word is truth. There is no truth like the truth of God's word. And I don't think that I can emphasize the point enough in our day today. I mentioned it somewhat in our prayer. I mentioned this last week as well. There are a lot of claims to truth that are out there in the world today. There are a lot of voices that are clamoring to have your ear. That are saying, listen to me, I'm truth. Many of them. And they're very compelling as well. We must be careful to not listen to those voices at all. Don't heed them. Don't give them the time of day. And I fear that there are many Christians who listen to fake imitations of truth all the time and maybe they're not even aware of it. I feel very much today like we are Christian pilgrims walking through Vanity Fair. If you've ever read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, then you know the image that I'm conveying right here. Listen to a brief excerpt. This is... Christian and faithful, his friend, who are walking through the city, Vanity Fair, that they have to walk through in order to get to the celestial kingdom. And it shows how hated they were by the citizens of Vanity Fair. Listen as I read from John Bunyan's book. That which did not a little amuse... I'll start over. That which did not very little amuse the merchandisers was the fact that these pilgrims set very light by all their wares, which means they did not care to look upon them. And if they called upon them to buy, they would put their fingers to their ears and they would cry, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. And they would look upwards, signifying that their trade and traffic was in heaven. One seller mockingly said, beholding the carriages of the men, to say to them, What will you buy? But Christian and faithful, looking gravely upon him, said, We buy the truth. You can imagine the scene. People all around them are trying to get Christian and faithful to buy, to take advantage of what they're selling. They're selling false truths. And Christian and faithful say, no, we buy the truth. And the story goes on that after this, they were quickly taken to trial and they were sentenced to death. All because they deemed the so-called truth of the world to be inferior to the truth that they desired to know. Which was the truth of God and his word. And I wonder if we evaluate God's truth as we should. 
Do we prize the truth of Scripture so much higher than the wares of the world that we end up offending those who are offering it to us? Do we come across as offensive to those in the world who are trying to get us to believe the things that they think are true that are contrary to God's word? Are we reproachable to our worldly neighbors as Christian and faithful were? Are we thought to be foolish on account of what we find to be true and good? I hope we are. Because if we aren't thought that way, then it's possible that we don't know Christ at all. Because to know Him is to know truth. It's not merely to be acquainted with the truth of God. It's not merely to have an academic understanding of the truth of God. It is to have His truth in us in such a way as to see His truth as the most important object of our mental energies. Is that what you put your mind to more than anything else? If it is then it shows you know Christ because his truth is in you and it's what you value most importantly. But do you most eagerly put your mental capacities on other things? That might reveal that his truth is not actually in you. And I truly hope that all of us would rather strive to know God's truth than any other kind of truth in this world. Even if it is quote-unquote good truth. There's nothing like the truth of Scripture. A true understanding of human history, it's helpful. True understanding of medicine, that's beneficial indeed. A true understanding of human behavior can assist us in many ways. But none of those disciplines are of any value compared to the truth of God found in His Word. Sure, put your mind on things that are true in the world that are helpful for this life. But do not do so to the neglect of the truth of God's word. It is that truth that we know as those who know Christ. Because to know Christ is to know truth. Thirdly then, we learned last week that to know Christ is the same thing as loving God. To know Christ is to love God. Look at verse 5. John says, whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now, you'll remember there are a couple ways to take this. But as I argued last week, to have God's love perfected in us, I believe, means that we love God in the most complete way possible. We have come to love God in a perfected kind of way. Not perfectly. We all have room for improvement. But to the highest degree possible, we have come to love God in that way. In other words... If we know Christ, then it means that we love God as he demands that he be loved. Think about some of the commands in Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 and 6, we read the great call of God to his people. Moses says there, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus then echoes, (coughs) excuse me, Jesus echoes this great instruction when he's asked what the greatest commandment is in Matthew chapter 22. 
In Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34, Jesus, or we read this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. If God has given this as a command, if Jesus has given us this as a command, then it must be possible for what? For us to obey it. Not perfectly, not as much as we would like to obey it. But if you have come to know Christ, then you have come to have the ability to obey the command to love God. You have come to love God so that you can truly say that you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what it means that knowing Christ is the same thing as having the love of God perfected in us. And then now we come to the fourth aspect of what it means to know Christ. And this last aspect of what it means to know Christ might be the most important of them all. Because I believe this final aspect is what allows all the others to be true. All the other aspects of what it means to know Christ hinge upon this one being true in us. This last aspect gives rise to all the other parts of what it means to know Christ. In other words, we aren't able to have an eternal relationship with Christ, and we aren't able to have his truth in us, and we aren't able to have a perfect kind of love for God. We aren't able to have these things if we do not experience this last aspect of knowing Christ as a fundamental prerequisite. So fourthly, we must see from what John writes in verse 6 that to know Christ is to abide in Christ. To know Christ is to abide in Christ. Look at verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And what we have going on again is a logical connection that's being made between knowing and obeying. You ought to walk in the same way that he walked. So that's being connected to abide, saying authentically that you abide in him. Which, of course, the whole thing, we're connecting knowing Christ to obeying him. So therefore, the point that John is making is that saying that you abide in Christ, being able to make that claim is the same as saying that you know him. So if we're to be able to know that we have come to know him, then we're going to be able to say that we abide in him. So what I want to do for this morning is come to a better understanding of what that means. What does it mean to abide in Christ? It's a, it's a term we see in Scripture. We might throw it out every now and then. But do we really understand what it means? And I'll start by simply looking at what the word itself can be defined as. The word here in verse 6 that we're thinking about is translated in the ESV that I read from as abide. In other English versions, you might see it as remain or even as reside. In the Greek, the word is meno, and it's a word that simply can be used to refer to someone staying put in a certain location. You just stay put. Listen to these uh, texts, these uses of the word. Matthew 10, 11, 
And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Jesus simply telling the disciples where to set up their lodging. That's the word to stay. John 7, 9, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. Jesus remained in Galilee. And then Acts 9, 43, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon. Talking about where he stayed. That's one very common use of the word. There are dozens of uses of this word in that way in the New Testament, where it's simply referring to someone staying put in a certain place. But then there's another use that has serious theological implications for us. In the same way that people can stay here or there, and in the same way that a person could remain in a certain position if they were asked to, so also we often see this word in the New Testament to the fact that Christians are those who stay in Christ. We are said to remain in him. We are said to dwell in him. We abide in him. We live in him. That's where we stay. Listen to these verses that I'm going to share with you that give further nuance and context to what it means to abide in Christ. This will start filling out our understanding. John 6.56 Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my my blood abides in me. And I in him. John 8.31 So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. John 9.41 The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. John 12.46 I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. 1 John 2.17 And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2.28 And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 1 John 4.13 By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And then 2 John verse 9 Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And those definitely are not all the references in the New Testament to us abiding in Christ, but it's many of them. You can see that this idea really is fully developed, and it's not a small issue at all. It's a major idea that we are to abide in Christ as those who know him. It's a major theme in the New Testament. And I think that if you were to put serious study into all the reference references in the New Testament to abiding in Christ, I think you would come to the conclusion that we could clump the ideas into three categories, three distinct elements to what it means to abide in Christ. And so that's going to be my outline for this morning as I walk through these things. I'll say them up front and then I'll go through them one by one. First of all, abiding in Christ, if you're filling it in the, in the bulletin, abiding in Christ is opposite to our natural state of abiding in darkness. 
Abiding in Christ is opposite to our natural state of abiding in darkness. That's the first thing. And then secondly, abiding in Christ is always accompanied with him abiding in us. If we abide in Christ, he abides in us. That's the second thing. And then thirdly, abiding in Christ is the only fuel for the Christian's obedience. And I'll say those again as I get to them. And as, I, as we run through them, I hope you'll gain a better understanding of what it means for us all to abide in Christ. So let, let me start with that first one. Let's see from Scripture that abiding in Christ is opposite to our natural state of abiding in darkness. We must not fail to remember that all of us began life residing happily in darkness. Ephesians 5.8 says that we were at one time darkness. It was said of Jesus in Luke 1 verse 79 that his purpose would be to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's all of us. John 3.19 indicates clearly the natural state of all men when Jesus says, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's us. We love darkness. Paul's mission from Christ himself is given in Acts chapter 26, where we read that he was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in order that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. God's work in us is summarized in Colossians 1 and verse 13, which says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Peter tells the saints of their unique mission to the world in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then in John 12 and verse 46, we find it clearly stated that Jesus' That Jesus came as a light in order to break out sinners from the darkness that they remained in as residents. The word meno there is used to refer to us in darkness. I have come into the world as light, Jesus said, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Because that's what we're doing, naturally, to start. We're dwelling residing comfortably in darkness. And all of us without exception began life in that way, abiding in darkness. We dwelt there. We were card-carrying citizens of darkness. We were at home in darkness. We were completely fascinated by it, and we were content to stay there. That's what it means to abide in something. And we read of our former state not to discourage us and not to make us feel guilty, but rather we read in Scripture about what it was like for us to abide in darkness so that we now know what it's like to abide in Christ. Everything that it was true of abiding in darkness is now true of what it means to abide in Christ. If 
Abiding in darkness meant that we dwelt there as citizens in darkness. Then abiding in Christ means that we dwell as permanent and authorized citizens in Christ himself. We belong there and it's verified that we belong there. If abiding in darkness meant that we felt at home in darkness, then abiding in Christ means that we feel at home in Christ and with his people. And if abiding in darkness meant that we were intrigued with and we were fascinated by darkness and that we were fully content remaining there, then it's true that abiding in Christ means that our minds are fully captivated by Christ and that there really are no other competitors for our affections. We are content with Christ alone. So if you want to assess how well you are thinking about the fact that you abide in Christ, then you simply need to think about how content with him you are, how satisfied with him you are, how your affections, your love is captured by him. And to the point that we're making right now, we have to realize that our affections and our contentments Our satisfactions, they are always going to be set fully upon Christ or upon the darkness, upon this world. There's no middle ground. We begin life drawing deep from the well of the world and we continue in life going to that well over and over and over again. But when Christ comes and captures our hearts, we no longer have affections for that well, as it were. From that point on, our satisfaction comes not from darkness, but rather it comes from Christ because we abide in him. We remain in him and not in the world. If you lived in one city, why would you travel to the other city to get water? We don't live there anymore. Now we live in Christ and we get all of our nourishment and satisfaction and contentment from him. That's the first element about abiding in Christ that we see in Scripture. The second element about abiding in Christ is that our abiding in Him is always accompanied by His abiding in us. Our abiding in Him is always accompanied by Him abiding in us. Consider the following verses. I read some of them already. John 6, 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. John 14, 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. 1 John 2, 14, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him. 1 John 3, 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then 1 John 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. 
So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's really clear. Abiding in Christ means that he, Christ, God, the Spirit, his word, are in us, remaining, dwelling in us as well. There are a few implications to that point that I could make, but I will let just one Bible text make the point far better than I ever could. You know this verse probably, 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 to 20, where Paul asks a very convicting rhetorical question. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? If God now inhabits you, you belong to him. For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. In other words, the fact that the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, takes residence in us, that should motivate us to a certain kind of living. The knowledge of his indwelling should cause us to realize the great treasure that God has given to us. And that realization ought to motivate us to live for his glory. But even greater than that, even greater than being motivated to pursue God's glory in our bodies, we have to realize that the third element to abiding in Christ indicates that we are not merely inspired or encouraged to live for the glory of God in, in obedience to Christ. It's not just a, here's an expiring, inspiring example, now go have at it. More than that, we are empowered, strengthened by the fact that we abide in Christ to live a life of obedience. God doesn't just dangle a carrot in front of us and say, because I'm in you, now go obey. He also gives us the power to do it. Being in Christ, abiding in Christ, empowers us to obey. So thirdly, abiding in Christ is the only fuel for the Christian's obedience. It's the only fuel. Nothing else will empower us to obey. And this is where we hit the great transition to the other aspects of knowing Christ. We cannot be brought into an eternal relationship with Christ apart from the fact that we abide in him. John said in verse 3, we have come to know him. We don't come to know him if we don't remain in him. We cannot know the truth at all apart from the fact that we abide in him. Because if we're not abiding in him, we're abiding in darkness. So how can you know the light, the truth, if you're in darkness? So to know truth, we have to abide in Christ. And then we cannot love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, unless we are abiding, remaining in Christ. There's just no way possible to do that. And then also we preview what comes next in next week's sermon, we cannot hope to obey Christ at all, apart from the fact that we abide in him. So we're going to see that this theme of abiding in Christ and he, is, uh, and he in us, it's a major theme in John's letter. And that's not by accident. Because if his main point is that we know that we know Christ by obeying Christ, if that's the main point, then don't you think he's going to tell us how we can obey Christ? He certainly is. And the how to obeying Christ 
begins with our understanding of how we abide in Christ. And what we begin to see here in 1 John 2 and verse 6 is that there is no obedience at all apart from the empowerment of abiding in Christ. And therefore, there's no knowledge of Christ at all without the empowerment of abiding in Christ. To make it as simple as I, if, as I can, if we do not abide in Christ, then we know nothing of him at all. If we don't remain and dwell in Christ, then we have no hope of knowing him. We cannot know him. We cannot know the truth. We cannot love God. We cannot obey him if we're not remaining in him. And at this point, I think we would be very much helped to read a passage that I've read before, but one that is the definitive text for the topic that we're covering. Now, I've deliberately skipped over it, and all the verses I've read, I've not read from this one text, because this text is the best bullet that I have for my gun this morning to shoot into your minds. And really, it's not a bullet, it's a, it's a missile it's really powerful. And so I'm going to read this text and it really makes so much clear for us. If, if I wanted to come up with an argument for helping you to see your need for the fact that you need to think about abiding in Christ, then it would pale in comparison to this text that I'm going to read. So let's all turn in our Bibles to the, the ballistic missile reason why we should think every day about abiding in Christ that we read in John chapter 15. John 15. And I'm going to read the first 11 verses for us together. I know I've done this before. And as we read through and study through John's letter, we probably will end up reading through this text again. Just let Jesus' teaching fill your minds because it is so rich and so clear. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it bear, may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And friends, the picture here is just so clear. There's very little that I need to add to it. The words of our Lord and the image he brings to bear in our minds makes the point so vivid. Jesus even explicitly says that apart from abiding, being connected to him, and staying there, we can do nothing. 
It is only due to the fact that we remain connected to him that we can do anything of value at all. And at this point, I think it might be helpful for me to add some practical thoughts that might be benefit, beneficial to us as we think about the topic of abiding in Christ. Because if you think about it, you might have thought of this before, I know I have. There's something a little bit counterintuitive about this idea. Think about the command to abide about the command to remain or reside. It's basically a command to not leave. The command is stay as you are. Don't depart. That's basically what the command is. It's maybe better thought of as a negative. Don't do that. So the command to remain is really the command to not depart. And what I think is an interesting thing for us to consider, all of us, is... The question of how is it possible for us to fail? Because it's a command. If we're commanded to abide, then it's possible for us to not abide. If it's a command for us to stay, it's possible for us to go. And we want to make sure that we don't go. We don't depart. So what does it mean for us to obey this command? If John and Jesus command us to abide in Christ... It must be possible for us to fail in doing it. Otherwise, there's no sense in them commanding it. He would just state it as an indicative fact. But it's a command. But at the same time, we have to be careful how we think about what it means to fail. Because what does Jesus say is true of those in John 15 who fail to abide? They're cut off and they're destroyed. So in light of all this, I think there are two specific ways in which we can fail to obey the command to abide. And in looking at how we can fail, it's not to discourage us. It's to help us rather see how we can succeed. So we will, in looking at how to fail, we'll see what to avoid so that we're certain we can succeed in following this command of our Savior. So the first way to fail And the command to abide in Christ is what I call the long-term failure. We can fail in the long term. This long-term failure of abiding in Christ is the failure known as apostasy. This is the failure of walking away from the Christian faith. This is the failure of Judas Iscariot. This is the failure of the Pharisees. Sadly, it's the failure of some even in our day. This is the failure of those who at one point looked like they were abiding in Christ. They appeared as if they were a branch to the vine. They looked like it from the outside. But they ultimately failed to stay with Christ because they were actually just glued on. They weren't organically connected to him. They were duct taped onto the vine and they can't get any nourishment from the vine because there's no real connection. And so eventually they fall away. Eventually they walk away. They did not stay put where he told them to stay because they never were remaining in Christ to begin with. This is the most sobering fate for anyone. Because scripture makes it very clear that if a person does not abide in Christ for the long haul, 
And if they end up walking away from him after appearing as if they were with him, if that happens, Scripture tells us that that person cannot come back. Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 8 is sobering but very clear. The writer says this, For it is impossible... Scripture doesn't say a lot of things are impossible. But this is. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted in the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So someone who's been exposed to all that, basically they've associated with the people of God for a long time. They've tasted of the goodness of that. Scripture says it's impossible if they have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. And then he goes on. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Basically, if you're a field and you are exposed to all the grace that God gives to his people, his people as a good field will then give crops that are fruitful. But if you are going to be a field that is around all of those other good fields and you're going to get exposed to the teaching of Christ and the blessings that come to all the other fields around you and you're only going to give thorns and thistles then the only thing that you are good for is destruction that's the analogy that's used here the point is that a person who has tasted of the goodness of what being on Christ's vine is like They've seen the fruit of the other branches. They've been that close to Christ himself. But they were never truly connected to him. Thus they walked away from him. The writer of Hebrews says it is impossible to restore them in repentance after they have decided to leave Christ. That is a hard truth. But it is a clear and plain truth nonetheless. So the first way to fail to obey is this long-term failure, the failure of apostasy. You can fail to remain in Christ by leaving him altogether, never to be able to return. May that be none of us. I pray that none of us would depart from Christ because we never actually were connected to him. But then the second way that we can fail is the failure to rely upon the grace of Christ for obedience. The failure to rely on his grace. This is the short term. The moment by moment failure. Not the long term one. This is what happens when we lean on our own understanding. As Proverbs 3.5 says. I'm going to do it my way. This is what happens when we are not filled with the Spirit, as Ephesians 5.18 says. It's like we're a car that just fails to put the right fuel in. We try to do it on our own. This is the failure that all Christians are capable of experiencing at any moment. It's the temptation to rely upon the flesh. It's the temptation to not watch and pray. 
It's the temptation to neglect the word. It's the temptation to naively think that we have overcome that sin. I'll never do that one again. It's the temptation to fail to think upon the grace of Christ as our source of strength at every moment of our lives. And so we must not fail to abide in Christ in the sense that we fail to remember that He alone is the source of faith and obedience at every moment in life. At every point in your life. Every time you think about anything or do anything. It has to not be far away from you, the realization that everything that you do must come from the grace of Christ. May I drive home by His grace. May I be patient with my children or my family members or my co-workers by the grace of Christ. May I watch what is appropriate on TV by the grace of Christ. Fill in the blank. May I do that By the grace of Christ. And the moment we disconnect, may I do that, from by the grace of Christ, we have failed to abide in him. We're thinking, oh, I have enough self-discipline to overcome this. We're relying on ourselves. Oh, I have enough accountability in my life set up already so that I won't do that. We're failing to abide in Christ when we do that. The only true source of obedience... The only true source of putting off sin is remembering at every moment that our strength comes from Christ and from Christ alone. There simply is no time in life when we're able to stop thinking about how our strength and power to obey comes from Christ. And so back to John's point in 1 John 2 and verse 6. We must never fail to remember that knowing Christ is fully dependent upon us abiding in Christ. We cannot know him if we do not abide in him. And then next week we'll continue this idea even further as we learn what it means to obey Christ as a result of knowing him. Because even that will be connected to us remaining or abiding in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we repent right now as your people of the fact that we frequently fail in that we frequently do not remember that our source of strength is Christ alone. If only, Father, we would at every moment have in our mind the knowledge that we can't do anything apart from Christ, and so we would have his word in us, and we would be prayerful, and we would be watching If only that were the case, we would sin less and we would obey more and we would be a much more blessed people as a result and you would be receiving the glory that you deserve in our lives as you ought more than you do. So Father, we confess that we fail in this regard and we pray for your mercy and your strength and your grace to help us to remember at every moment that we abide in Christ because apart from him we can do nothing. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.